This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stania, and we will get through this. So I'm recording this during the pandemic. And what this means is that for many of us, we are at day 45 of physical isolation, social isolation, if you want to call it that. And of course, many of us are going, 45 days, I can't take it anymore. It's doing my head in. And if 45 days feels like a long time, then you start understanding how slippery time is in the human mind. Because if that's 45 days, what would a year feel like? What would 10 years feel like? What would 100 years feel like? 100 years feels unimaginable. I mean, can you imagine back to 1921 and what it was like there? Can you imagine 4 to 2121 and what it was like then? So imagine or just imagine imagining what it would mean to think in increments of 10,000 years. That's what the Long Now Foundation is. I've been a member for 15 years or so because I love their commitment to long-lived, long-term, long-presence thinking, thinking in 10,000 years increments. And I'm really excited to talk to the executive director of the Long Now Foundation now, Alexander Rose. So Alexander is an industrial designer who's been working with the Long Now Foundation and computer scientist Danny Hill since 01997 to build a monument to build at monumental scale a mechanical 10,000 year clock and the pictures of this are quite stunning. Alexander speaks about the work of the Long Now Foundation all over the world at venues ranging from the TED conference to corporations and government agencies. As the director of Long Now, Alexander founded The Interval and has facilitated a range of projects, including the Organizational Continuity Program, the Rosetta Project, Long Beta, seminars about long-term thinking, which are terrific. I subscribe to those, Long Server, and others. Alexander shares several design patents on the 10,000-year clock with Danny Hillis, the first prototype of which is in the Science Museum of London, and the monument-scale version is now under construction in West Texas. So, Alexander, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm such a fan of the organization's work and just how it has kind of shaken my head upside down. But the name is intriguing, the Long Now Foundation. What, what's the origin of Long Now? Uh, yeah, when this project was started, it was started by a group of kind of computer scientists and, and early Silicon Valley um, People ranging from Stuart Brand, who started the Whole Earth Catalog, to, as you mentioned, Danny Hillis, who's built some of the fastest supercomputers in the world. And originally, actually, it was called Clock Library. It was this idea of of building a monument-scale 10,000-year clock as an icon to long-term thinking and to get people to think in a different mode than they do, um, especially as we increasingly are, are in a world where next quarter kind of economics are what's driving mm-hmm. almost all decisions. And um, so the name uh, quickly was realized that a clock and then the library side of this uh, that was um, talked about originally by Stuart Brand um, as kind of a library information service that could last alongside this 10,000 year clock as a way of keeping data relevant to civilization over these same timescales. But um, it was realized that the um, this 
it needed a, a more evocative name. And, and Brian Eno, um, who's one of the other founding board members, had used this term long now um, when he first moved from London to New York. And he realized pretty quickly that in New York, when people said now or here, they really meant like the walls that they were in between <laughs> and the right. five minutes that they were in and very much uh, not the time that they were in and the larger society that they were in when they said um, here and now. And so he coined this term um, long now at that time um, to say that, you know, some people live in a longer now. And, and we stretched that even further and looked at this time frame of 10,000 years, which is roughly how long, you know, since the last Ice Age retreated and, and agriculture started. It's our kind of modern civilizational moment. Um, and so this idea that we should not only be um, having um you know, some deference and realization of that last 10,000 years, but more importantly, that we should also be taking the next 10,000 years, aka the next 400 generations in yeah. account um, as we think about certain things and not all things. And, you know, it's, it's, we definitely have a reference that, uh, or understanding that there are many things that need to happen fast and frenetically. And that's where a lot of exploration and art and, and, um, and fashion and all these things are moving. But there are things that, um, that are worth taking seriously. And I think, you know, this pandemic is a great example in a sense of, you know, how, how not so good our civilization can be a very long interval events that, that don't come back for, let's say five generations, um, like some, like this pandemic or an asteroid impact or a tsunami. These are things that we seem to, um, file away and, and stop budgeting for after a certain time. And then they really come back and bite us for that lack of preparation and thought. So, um, the, the origin of the foundation was really this notion that there are some things that we need to think longer term about, like climate um, pre- preparedness, things like that, um, and that we need some kind of mechanism and myth for doing the right kind of storytelling to remind civilization that these things are, are worth thinking about. That's an interesting combination of words, mechanism and myth. So many things I want to ask you, Alexander. Um, look, I know you've been working for, with the organization really almost since its, its inception in, in 01997. And so I know part of the, the way that being part of this has affected your life is you get to work on amazing projects like the, the clock. I'm curious, though, how being immersed in a 10,000-year way of thinking has just affected the way that you show up and you live your life now? I mean, uh, to a lot of extents, uh, I, I, I have lots of deadlines. I still have to do work. I still have to, you know, all, all the normal <laughs> right. things still apply, you know. You I still, still get email. <laughs> still have to get my kid to school. Yeah. Um, but um, I think that the thought is to be cognizant of the things that, that are worth thinking longer term about. And there are, you know, there are some things in day-to-day life. I mean, you know, even as let's say, you know, you work on a house project or something, you're like, am I doing the, am I doing the one year fix or am I doing the, the, the hundred year fix? Right. Um, and um, as you, you know, as you own products and things in your life, you know, are you buying the Bic pen that's good till tomorrow or are you buying the Mont Blanc that's good for your whole life? And what are the trade-offs and in, in these kinds of decisions in your life um, certainly become more um, surfaced for me than I think they would otherwise. But um, for the most part, the types of things that that we talk about around long-term thinking are the types of things that um, 
that need a little bit more attention over the long term if you are going to take them seriously and engage them very much. It The goal is to get people to engage these issues right now and here and today um, by giving them this longer context. You know, if 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 no one has ever has had uh, an asteroid impact affect their lives, it's very difficult right. for them to, you know, think, well, maybe we should have a NASA budget that allocates some money to finding asteroids and potentially having a plan to deal with them. Um, otherwise, we're basically just like the dinosaurs, just waiting for it to hit. Um, and um, so the goal is to kind of find ways to talk about these things, have stories about them, engage um, society in ways that is are constructive and, you know, aren't consuming the, the, the current plans, but are keeping those things in um in perspective so that we make sure that we don't get, you know, blindsided by something that could eliminate life on earth. Um, and, you know, now that we're one of the only species that has ever had prior knowledge that that could happen. Um, yeah. I think it's pretty important that we, we think about that. So, so talk to me a little bit about that combination of mechanism and myth. It's such a powerful combination. You know, one, one, they feel so different and yet they feel so complementary at the same time. Can you, can you tell me what you mean by each one? Well, when you're talking about trying to convey information and make it compelling over time spans of generations and millennia, there really are no technologies for this, right? Mm. You know, on some level, you know, we wrote things down on stones that were, you know, that we do see thousands of years later, but they aren't really, they aren't compelling in terms of storytelling and changing the way people do a lot of things. Um, I, the, what have been, though, are stories that have been handed down um, over time. And, we, you know, we've got the Epic of Gilgamesh and, and sure. Odyssey and, and these things, which are still, you know, relevant parables today that actually do change the way people think. And so that is our technology is storytelling. Um, and the question is, you know, what is what is the proper method of storytelling um, for this? And what are some of the new myths that we can um, that we can help engender uh, to get people to think on these timescales and take them seriously and and identify the useful things? And so the thought is um, that if we do kind of large, iconic projects that are compelling in their own right. And it's not us telling people to think long-term, but they're just really evocative. And people then tell stories that integrate those things like a 10,000 year clock, or um, one of our other projects is uh, micro etching thousands of language on a disc that's been launched, you know, on the, right, the Rosetta space. disc. Yeah. yeah. The European space agency's Rosetta mission has one. And now there's been a few on different uh, space programs and around in museums around the world, but these kind of evocative objects that are, um, that the confrontation of them um, causes people to incorporate them into their stories or write stories about them or think about the world differently or just have a different conversation even, you know, at dinner. Um, if by having that provocation, um, that's a very different conversation than, for instance, if we wrote some white papers about time um, <laughs> and, you know, published them at an right. academic conference, which, you know, we do that too. But yeah. the, uh, the the thing is, is that those, those things are, you know, in some ways, you know, we like to think of the kind of academic arguments as being some of these longer term things, but they, they tend to be actually pretty fleeting um, in terms of how they change um, conversation sure. in civilization. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, what are the best ways to change a, a civilizational conversation? And we don't know the answer to that question. These are, these are kind of our, um, our attempts at doing that. There's something very powerful about understanding that stories are the things that have longevity 
And also what it seems to be you're saying is that putting an artifact at the heart of that story, whether it's the Rosetta disk, which I've got in my office here, because I know you send out lots of them to go, there, we want to populate the world with these so that there's these records of languages or the 10,000-year clock. How do you, as an organization, determine where to put your attention? Because it's not an insignificant act to build a 10,000-year clock. It's not an insignificant act to do the Rosetta disk. How do you decide what matters and what de- what determines your investment of the, the resources you have? Uh, yeah, we, we struggle with this all the time. And, you know, we're a small organization um, that um, has to concentrate very highly to get something of significance done um, and put our resources into it pretty carefully. And so a, a lot of the kind of things that we consider and think about is, you know, whether or not we are uniquely suited to do it. If we didn't do it, would it get done anyway? Um, what are our unique strengths to bring to this? And, you know, very obviously, no one was going to build a 10,000-year clock um, if if it wasn't for us doing it, um, or a micro-etched metal disc with with languages on it. Um, you know, we also do things that are a little bit more conventional, like we have a lecture series, the seminar series that you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, but we try and bring the, ang- the angle to that is, you know, asking each speaker to say how long-term thinking and, you know, long-term past and future is relevant to the topic that they often talk about, you know, all over the world or about their new book or whatever, but then what is the long-term thinking angle of that? Um, and so, um, you know, we also have projects like long bets where people can bet on, um, right. on things of social and scientific consequences with the, the winnings go to the, going to the charity of the winner's choice. Um, and we've had bets ranging all, you know, paid out as much as $2.6 million with a Warren Buffett bet. Um, and then, you know, all the way down to a, a, a few hundred dollars, um, for anyone who wants to do it. But the goal is to find these compelling projects that um, that would be unique to us and when you, unique to the world if um, if we do them. Uh, if you know, I think one of the topics, for instance, that we a few things that we started on things like trying to help identify all the species on the planet or um, or some of the digital continuity projects on getting doing. Di- better digital preservation, other institutions took those on at a much more robust level. And so we just basically handed them off and, um, you know, we cheerlead them from the side, but they aren't our main project. So figuring out what we don't do is often as as what is important as what we do do. If I was just to shift the focus a bit to from your organization to my organization, and I'm like, okay, I would love to build the organizations I'm involved in into these kind of long-lived long-valued institutions. Um, Have you uncovered principles or guidelines that you'd offer up to say, this is what it seems to take to build an organization that has the ability to last generations? We actually started this project. um, It was the board, really just this whole project started as an online discussion. And one of the first things um, that the board did um, was to generate a set of kind of guidelines for a long-lived, uh, long-valuable institution. And, and we're actually in the midst of a process now of of updating and revising some of these. Um, but the, the founding ones um, were things like serving the long view, fostering responsibility, 
rewarding patients, um, taking no sides, leverage longevity and everything that we do, um, allying with competition rather than um, than trying to compete with people. Um, if people are doing something like us, we want to we want to work with them, not right. uh, see them as competition. So things like that um, are some of our founding principles. I'd be curious about the the piece around take no sides. You know, that's a really provocative and counterintuitive uh, principle because it feels for those of us that are swimming in the waters of capitalism, there's like, there's always a side. <laughs> you always need to take a side. For those of us that are in the, the world of politics, you know, there's always a side in politics as well. What, what's the thinking behind take no sides as one of the, the principles around a longer term institution? Well, I mean, if you, you know, fundamentally, if you were taking sides, you, um, you, you can, you inevitably will choose a losing one. Um, and then if you have, you know, a lot of your resources and your intellectual capital built into that, then, uh -huh. um, then you, you stand to lose a lot with that. Whereas if let's say there are two sides to an important thing, let's say climate science or something like that. If the way that you engage that argument is by is by, let's say, engaging in the science and having more data collected, not by choosing a particular side of that, uh -huh. of that equation. Um, and the, the other principle, sorry, that I was trying to remember earlier was just kind of preserving optionality, um, is that right. if fundamentally, if you are... If you're making choices that take options away from a future generation, um, you are you're you're kind of doing long-term thinking wrong. Where you want you want every future generation in a way to have more choices. Um, oh, you know, interesting. If you, were, if you were to chop down all the old growth redwoods in the Pacific Northwest that we do have left, you've now taken that option away from any future generation of, mm -hmm. of thinking about and managing that in a better or more interesting way and even just experiencing them, right? So you want to um, you want to make choices that that give the future more options because fundamentally the future is the future generations have more information than we have. Um, you know, yep. our their, their present is our unimaginable future. Um, and so you want to trust them just like we hope we wished that, um, that our past generations had preserved more optionality for us, frankly, um, with things like yeah. climate and the environment, um, especially, um, but in all kinds of things, this can happen in policymaking, um, as well. And, you know, as we, as we know, you know, a lot of modern, if we look at Old policies like the Bill of Rights, for instance, um, they're a few sentences each, very powerful principle-based ideas that um, that require interpretation of by every generation. Whereas you look at a modern law, and it's a thousand pages long of telling ev absolutely every right. way you, you should not interpret this law um, because right. they don't they fundamentally don't trust the future and so you want to find ways of um, of trusting that future and giving that empowerment to those generations so alexander if i'm thinking this is all making great sense but acknowledging that at the same time i've i've been trained in anything but long-term thinking or long-term responsibility and i'm just not that good at it right now. Where do you guide me to get start becoming just a little bit better at this idea of thinking long term and playing that longer game? Well, you know, as I said before, you, you can't tell anyone to think long term, they really have to arrive at it. And there's different aspects of our lives that that it's going to matter more for. 
I think yes. that whenever, you know, whenever faced with a decision, especially some of the larger ones about our institutions that we might work for or um, our families or any of these things, um, I think it's always a good thing to look back as far as you are looking forward. So if you're trying to make a decision that might affect the next 10 years of your company, looking back at the last 10 years um, is helpful. You don't want to be constrained by that, but you always, that's a great way to start anything is to kind of give that some temporal balance um, so that you are thinking about, you know, some, one of the projects I'm working on right now is called the organizational continuity project where I'm talking to people who um, have uh, are part of companies or organizations that have been around for uh, many generations, in some cases over millennia. Um, And, you know, one of the things that a lot of them have, almost all of them went through the last pandemic, for instance, and have right. and and to, have, and to varying degrees have stories of how their companies or their organizations weathered the last pandemic, and that's a really interesting bit of information um, right. to have right now. And so, um, being able to learn from the past, I think, is is always very helpful. Um, and you know, but it should always be tempered with you know, if you if you only are paying attention to the past, you're never going to invent new things in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, you know, knowing when to ignore the past and when to 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 give it deference, I think are, are are really the balances that that are very helpful. I mean, one of the things that I love about the Long Now Foundation, and it kind of made me smile the first time I saw you do it, was just the way the symbolic act of changing dates. So you know, you write uh, two thousand and twenty not as two zero two zero, but you go it's zero to it's zero twenty twenty. So it's a five digit date, not a four digit date. And it's a small, it's a small act, but it, it's, it, for me anyway, had a real resonance, which is like, oh, I can really see what this means. And I can really see that, that I can see a timescale that I'm playing on in a way that I hadn't seen before. I'm wondering if there are other symbolic acts that you guys have done or you've experimented with or that you could share that help that shift or help people arrive at long-term thinking? Because as you say, you can't necessarily train people to do it immediately, but you have to arrive. How do you help people arrive? Yeah, well, it's it's a lot of small things like that. I mean, the five-digit date, uh, year date thing was something that, you know, we really found in a way by accident. Um, I mean, it was kind of inevitable in that we were, we were one of the displays of the first prototype of the clock um, showed the Gregorian year, uh, the modern calendrical year. Um, or at least the Western modern calendrical year, and you know, as we were starting this project in uh, in '97, we realized pretty quickly that we were going to have to read out to roughly the year 12,000 AD, and so it it kind of forced us to solve the Y10K bug uh, <laughs> well, well in advance, um, and um, and so the the five digit date was born, and we realized just by using it, it caused people to ask questions, and I to this day mm-hmm. I still you know, put it on my checks and my tax returns and, and things <laughs> like that. And uh, so far, you know, often people just let it fly. But, um, you yeah. know, I know authors who sign their books with dates like that, um, who've been inspired by it. And so it's a it's a subtle act that um, that gets, you know, causes somebody to have a conversation. And um, we try to do that with all the objects that we build and these um, other projects like that. We, 
um, the, the space that we have in San Francisco, um, it has a public uh, space that we do events in. That's also a bar and a cafe and a museum. And every single object and surface within that space um, is somehow evocative of some of our projects, but we don't put signage on it. Um, we let people kind of ask questions about it. You know, why is this why is this this funny shape? What is this odd mechanism here? And then they, they get tell the story and then they get to tell that story to somebody else, which is right. often, you know, for those of you who've ever taught a class or something like that, the best way to learn any subject is to try and teach it to somebody else. So often somebody will come in and be told the story um, or maybe they'll come in and just have a drink and walk up, but then be intrigued by everything. And then they'll come back mm-hmm. and they'll ask some questions. And then they'll, the third time they bring some people back and then they have to explain it. And they realize that they don't know it as well as they had hoped and ask more questions. Um, so trying to find ways like that, that, that cause yes. people to have different conversations, tell different stories, um, be intriguing enough that we, you know, that someone might bring us up in a dinner conversation in, in some yeah. other aspect around long-term thinking, you know, we don't have a press office or anything like that, but we just try and do things that, um, that are intriguing enough that, that people will um, hopefully be inspired by them. Well, well, let me leap off that. I'm putting. I'm going to put you on the spot slightly. So, if you're like, oh, I, I, I don't know, uh, that's fine. But I'm curious to know who you look to as a great storyteller. You know, maybe that's somebody who's been a speaker at your speaker series, or maybe it's just somebody beyond that. But, you know, I, I love, and I hadn't really understood the importance of the storytelling as part of the Long Now Foundation's modus operandi. Um, who do you look to as as somebody who has a great gift for storytelling. Well, we've had some fantastic storytellers in our speaking series. I mean, we've had people like David Eagleman, who's a neuroscientist who studies time in the brain um, and does all things like all kinds of things like uh, advise you know Hollywood movie projects to um, very academic things on on time and the brain. But he also wrote a book called Some Stories from the Forty Stories from the Afterlives. It's one of my oh, favorite, I love that. It's fantastic. Books, yeah, um, that is um, you know is really evocative. It's it was he wrote it you know long before his involvement with Long Now. He's one of our board members now as well. But um, the I I think those are some great stories we've had. People, uh, science fiction authors like Bruce Sterling, Neil Stevenson. Neil Stevenson wrote a book called Anathem, um, which um, oh, has has a lot of uh, <laughs> was inspired uh, to a great extent by the clock project itself. It's, right, you know, it's on a world with uh, lots of ten thousand year clocks, or at least long term clocks that are helping to remind society of of uh, the long term events in their society. Um, so we've we've had a lot of those. I think Neil Gaiman, um, we had speak in our series really about doing multi-generational storytelling and um, and it's Mm -hmm. one I would recommend people listen to. I think um, if there's anybody that's kind of taken the meta view of how to, how you might write stories or think about generating stories that are evocative over generations, um, he really took that um, task to heart and, um, and is obviously just one of our greatest storytellers out there. Um, Michael Chabon is a Pulitzer prize winning author um, wrote a, I think one of the best articles about long now Um, we feature it on our website. Um, and, um, and it was, it was a short article that he wrote, I think it was for details magazine originally. Um, and it was over a decade ago or more. Yeah. Um, And and his books are wonderful. And of course he was just the showrunner on uh, Picard as well. So he's a Star Trek nerd, which is also kind of future focused as well. Yes. Yeah. It turns out he was a, he was a Brian Eno fan and um, he lives locally here. I've only met him a couple of times, but, um, he wrote, I think, 
one of the most evocative pieces about the project um, or great. more more less about the project and more about long-term thinking and why it matters and use the project as the mechanism for it. So I think there's there's a lot of great folks out there doing it. And again, for people who are thinking to themselves, I want to arrive at long-term thinking, where can they find out more about the foundation? Where can they find out more about you? Well, our website at longnow.org continues to have a lot of information. Um, we're working on new versions of that, actually, as we speak. Um, our social channels, um, you know, at longnow on Twitter and uh, our Facebook pages and, and all those things have, um, you know, as we find new and interesting articles and things in the world, um, we'll publish them ourselves. Those are some of the channels. We have a Medium channel where a lot of our longer uh, form writing is housed. And um, so those are a lot of the venues That's we great. do. Our, our our lecture series has continued um, online. Uh, tomorrow, actually, we have Lawrence Doyle from Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence speaking about animal communication and how the understanding of that is relevant to how we might decipher communications from uh, other uh, other worlds. Um, and um, so those are uh, that lecture series is a podcast. It's downloaded by hundreds of thousands of people um, and um, probably uh, one of the easiest ways in to mm-hmm. uh, to a different perspective on long-term thinking uh, almost, uh, you know, at least a few times a month. So, Yeah, that's brilliant. And I'm just going to make a plug and say to people, if this does resonate with you at all, and I hope it does, I'd encourage you to take up a membership because this is a foundation that I think is worth supporting. And a membership is a great way to provide long-term support to a long-term organization. Um, Thank you. Very much appreciated, especially now since uh, that's basically one of our our largest uh, kind of remaining sources of income is that membership program. So very much appreciated. My pleasure. Um, Alexander Rhodes, this was awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.